Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. After quitting Oracle, I've taken a year off, traveled all around the world, backpacked, you know, traveled solo, and just trying to figure out what, what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to be just one cog in a big corporation sitting in front of a computer all day long. I knew I didn't want to be that. I knew I, I needed mm-hmm. to be you know, something, you know, more than that. One life to live. Let's figure out what you really love to do and, and do it. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome to the True Fiction Project. I am your host, Renita Hora. Today, I'd like to take a pause and think about entrepreneurs. There are entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. And here in Silicon Valley, we have this culture of failure, which hopefully, inevitably leads to success. And if it doesn't, at least there's a lot of learning that comes out of it. My guest today is what I am going to say is a very special entrepreneur because I have known him for most of my life. and perhaps most of his too. This is an old, old friend from childhood, from my school days, Rajiv Samant, who is the CEO and founder of Sula Vineyards in India, popularly known as the Robert Mondavi of India. So hi, Rajiv. Hey, Rini. How's it going? It's going great. I am very excited to have you on the True Fiction Project. And jumping right into it, Robert, Robert Mondavi of India. I mean, you are certainly not the first guy to bring wine to our country. So tell me about uh, why it is or how it is that uh, you came to be known as the entrepreneur who really put wine on the map of India. Hey, I like that intro. Um, and it's pretty apt, actually. Uh, Robert Mondavi was uh, a legend who was not the first person to bring wine to the U.S., uh, nor to, to California, nor even to Napa. But he was the one who um, really put Napa and Californian wine and uh, American wine to a large extent across the world on the map. And, um, you know, I would say that there's, there's a lot of parallels there. Um, I, we also both went to Stanford. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure you know that. Um, I didn't know reason, that. Stan- yeah, <laughs> Actually, Robert I Mondavi didn't know that. A, yeah, he's a Stanford grad. Um, and, you know, there, there are a lot of Stanford grads who've, who've actually gone into wine. So, of course, you, everybody knows about the, the, the Stanford grads who've gone into tech, like Jerry Yang, who was in the class just uh, one year 
junior to us who started Yahoo. Um, but you know, in the world of wine, you have some pretty, uh, pretty uh, some strong pillars of of the wine industry. So you had Mondavi, you had uh, uh, Draper, who started Ridge Vineyards, which is a, which a, which a fantastic, legendary winery again in California. And uh, in India, you have uh, me. I, I'm not sure that I'm as legendary as uh, Mondavi and uh, Draper, but definitely I was the guy who came back to India after spending a couple years after Stanford um, in Silicon Valley, working at Oracle, deciding I wanted to find my own thing, my own path, coming back to India, and then getting into wine very much by accident, but doing things very differently than what had been done already uh, here. So there had been a couple um, wineries that had already come up and had made a, a, some sort of name for themselves. But then when I came in and I, I tasted the wine that was being made, I said, oh, this is not a patch on the wine that I tasted when I was in California. And right, I'm the right guy in the right place with the right background. Um, I want to make wine, better wine here, wine that Indians will enjoy drinking and will be proud to drink, um, you know, proudly Indian wine being made in Nasik in Western India. And that's what I set out to do. So I am intrigued by, you know, what you say about you being the right guy with the right background, because you started off, correct me if I'm wrong, studying economics and engineering and actually going into tech, like a lot of the other Silicon Valley players that we know of. Um, but then you also apprenticed at some of these vineyards, if I remember correctly. And what made you the right guy? So I think, you know, from the time I was a kid, I think my heart was actually always in the humanities. So I enjoyed writing, mm -hmm. you know, was you know, always getting English prizes when I was in, in school. And then, you know, it was just necessary for an Indian son to go to the U.S. and become an engineer. Of it, it didn't have anything with you wanting to do it or having a love for it. It was just it was a, the thing you had to do. So I went and I, you know, did the the engineering degree and made my parents happy and, you know, fulfilled my my destiny, my Indian uh, boy child uh, destiny. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I mean, from day one, I realized that I much preferred the classes I was taking in history and, and things like that. So, you know, I, I, I was I don't think I was ever destined to be um, an engineer. Um, and why the right guy at the right time? Because I think I, I, brought, I had a confluence of three very unique backgrounds. One was being from uh, Bombay, now called Mumbai, mm -hmm. where all the, the, the cool restaurant entrepreneurship, uh, which was happening in India at that time, was all happening in Bombay. So you had restaurants like Indigo, mm -hmm. Olive. I was privileged to, to know those guys who, who did those restaurants, uh, which are so iconic, so well known even today. Um, and, uh, you know, so so I felt that I if I made a good wine, I would be able to market it to sell it to people like this, uh, much easier than somebody else. Then given my Californian stint, uh, you know, I, I had a degree in industrial engineering, I, I felt like I understood finance, I understood engineering, I was the right guy to build a winery in a place where nobody had ever built one before. Um, mm -hmm. from scratch and just, you know, based on some 
you know, technical drawings and stuff I picked up. And then my dad was born in Nasik, which is where I returned to and set up this, the winery, Sula. Um, mm-hmm. And so I had some contacts in, in Nasik. And Nasik is the number one um, grape growing region of India, has been for the last 40 years. Uh, it was all table grapes. And I was the first guy who sort of parachuted in and did wine grapes. So it was the confluence of all these things, the Bombay background, the time in California, the fact that, you know, my ancestry or my my dad was born in Nasik, all of that coming together made me the right person at the right time in the right place. That's great to hear. Now, I remember, I'm not sure whether I remember from conversation or if I read somewhere that your dad had a piece of land in Nasik. He was actually trying to sell it and there were no buyers at the time. And you went to him and said, hey, dad, you know, I could do something with it. And sort of one thing led to another. And now you talk about being a humanities buff. That ties right in because the reason I say that is because agriculture and frankly, any kind of industry, entrepreneurship, anything new requires learning the culture, learning about the locals, learning about what it's going to take to succeed in a particular area. So I would love to hear about that from your point of view and what was difficult. Was it difficult or was it a slam dunk? It was incredibly (laughs) difficult, incredibly. And absolutely, you had to be culturally attuned or figure out your way into this culture. Now, even though my dad was from Nasik, I had never spent any time in Nasik. So we just happened to come there for a family wedding. I was trying to find, figure out what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, after quitting Oracle, I'd taken a year off, traveled all around the world, backpacked, you know, traveled solo and just trying to figure out what, what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to be just one cog in a big corporation sitting in front of a computer all day long. I knew I didn't want to be that. I knew I, I needed mm-hmm. to be you know, something, you know, more than that one life to live. Let's figure out what you really love to do and, and do it. So, um, you know, when we got to Nasik, um, you know, we were at this family wedding and my dad just happened to take me to this piece of land. It was a very small piece of land. It was 10 acres, um, nothing much to look at, just grass up to your, you know, up to your head uh, with <laughs> snakes and all sorts of creatures uh, uh, crawling around underneath. There was nothing growing there. And my dad was trying to sell it for the princely sum of $700 an acre. And, you know, I just went there and I looked around and there was something magical uh, in the in the surroundings, some hills, a lake in the distance. And I just felt something. And I said, this looks a lot like parts of California. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I'd been up to Northern California to, to Napa, Sonoma, while I was at Stanford in San Francisco and really appreciated really enjoyed the kind of stuff that was going on there, even in the late 80s when, you know, Napa and Sonoma were starting to find themselves. So I said, this looks beautiful. Do not sell this. I would like to try to do something here. I've only ever worked stuff in my head, never done anything with my hands. And I think it's time I want to try to do something with my hands. Interesting. So how difficult was that? In your early days, at Oracle, you were a manager. And to me, when I think about your story, what I know of it, it really, you know, what rings out are the true hallmarks of a true manager, meaning 
you weren't a winemaker, you didn't know wine, yet you gathered a team of people to basically build this. And if I remember correctly, you even hired our chemistry department head from school, right? Mm -hmm. To be one of your chief consultants. Tell us about that. That's that's right. So I, I think you've really hit the nail, nail on the head. I mean, even today, I don't profess to be a winemaker by any means, but I, I managed to gather around me a group of people who, who made this whole thing happen. Um, you know, and everyone said that, okay, we could do this. I, we don't really know how to do this, but I can do, I can do that. And I said, okay, that's enough. That's, that's enough for now. And then we'll figure it out as we go along. Uh, one of the key things back then was finding Kerry Damsky. I, I realized that I needed somebody to be my mentor, um, you know, on this journey who knew something about wine, because I didn't know anything. All I knew was that I parachuted into this area where table grapes were grown. And I said, Hey, if table grapes can grow, then why not wine? Got a few books from UC Davis, which is, you know, really the mecca of, of uh, wine mm -hmm. education, um, and did a little research and figure out that the climate could be very suitable. Went to Davis, met a few professors, you know, presented to them. They said, hey, this could work. This could work. And then met mm -hmm. through somebody who had gone to college with me, business school, Kerry Damsky, great winemaker from Sonoma. Um, went and had uh, lunch with him in Hillsburg, persuaded him to be my consultant. He said, hey, it sounds great. It sounds really cool. I'll do it. And, mm. you know, I'm, of course, everlastingly grateful. So he's the one who, who taught us everything about wine. And then I had to find, you know, Mr. Sharma uh, was a hobbyist who <laughs> loved to, to get table grapes and make wine at home. And he was a chemistry teacher. So that was enough for me to say, OK, why don't you be our chief winemaker to start out with, you know? And um, so I just gathered a few people, a couple. Uh, what I was most proud about was the local village where nobody had, there was not a single person with a formal job. One person uh, was pumping gas at a gas station. Everybody else was mm -hmm. actually when I got there in, in the early 90s, they were using bows and arrows still to to shoot like rabbits wow. and hares and, and doing subsistence farming. Yeah, yeah, that's how. And I came from Silicon Valley to this. So how was it difficult? Yes, it was difficult. <laughs> um, everyone thought I was crazy. My friends thought I was really crazy. I would go off during the week, take the train, that was an adventure in itself to Nasik, then come back for the weekend and go crazy in the local uh, <laughs> Bombay Jim Khana bar. And everybody else was becoming a doctor and a lawyer and a banker. You know how it is. You know our friends. Yes. And here I was going to grow grapes in the middle of nowhere. And they thought, they, I mean, they, everybody humored me. Nobody ever said to my face that you're bloody, totally crazy. But I could see it, you know. And then I could see it even in the, the behind the eyes of the people who were in Nasik, who called me the NRI, which means the non-resident Indian. <laughs> um, I was the only person who'd ever come back from the US to try to do something in Nasik at that point. I do remember, I do remember where there was the standard joke floating around Bombay and, you know, the Bombay Gym Bar on Friday nights. Where is Rajiv these days? Oh, he's out in Nasik growing grapes, you know him. <laughs> and... Um, you know, so many years later, what, some 23 or something like that, years later, uh, who has the last laugh? I hope you are laughing loud and clear every single day. I think I chuckle. I think I chuckle. <laughs> you got to do a lot more than that. A lot of chuckles. You know, 
back then, so you started Sula in, I think it was 98 or 99. But today, I mean, this is not just, just, what is the word just? It's not, the business in itself has grown to so much more than bottling and selling and distributing wine, right? You've got tasting rooms and you've got resorts and you've got so much. So for an entrepreneur, the hardest part is always the start, or that's what they tell us. But how hard has it been through the years to get to the point that you're at today? Yeah, so the early years were the hardest. And uh, we had this, you know, in India, you have this incredible bureaucracy, really, at that time, used to hold anyone with new ideas or, you know, coming up with something new back it would it or the only thing the only reason it existed was to hold people back and tax the hell out of them and extract as much as you could while making them cry it almost felt like that so um there were you know uh, it was almost a ban on producing alcohol wine was not considered anything different from you know spirits made out of you know whatever grain or molasses um and i had to persuade sit down with the with the powers that be, the the, the mm-hmm. secretaries, the the politicians, and persuade them that they were really missing something here when they were talking about empowering farmers and and uh, giving rural employment and building rural incomes. So why are you uh, not looking at wine? You know, this is the number one up single agri-processed product in the world in terms of value, um, and you have a chance, you have an opportunity to do do this right in your own backyard. Um, why would you not give this a chance? And, you know, at that time, the, you know, after the first couple of years I started this, I just realized that I was, I had really made a huge mistake because the way the taxation and the oh. regulation was, there was no chance actually of succeeding. And the thing really? that changed it was when one bureaucrat and one senior politician said, look, we're going to give you a chance. What do you need? And we sat down and in an afternoon, they wrote down all my all the points that I said. And they said, right, we're going to come up with a wine policy. We're going to take all these points. We're going to make all, all of this uh, bad stuff go away. We're going to give you a chance. And so the, the tax on wine, which was crazy, it went away overnight in our state of Maharashtra. And that was what was needed. And after that came the explosion. Then, you know, it's, it's, it's still been difficult, but it has, it's never been as difficult as those initial years. The financial crisis was tough. 2008 was very tough. Credit dried up. There was lots of bulk wine sitting in the tanks. We had to come up with all sorts of stuff. But yes, it's mushroom today. Once again, I, I look back to Napa and Sonoma as my inspiration. And, you know, just realized that couldn't just sell wine. You had to make something of it. You had to make a destination. You had to make people come there, love what they saw, go back as converts, as uh, brand ambassadors, you know, each one of them put up a beautiful tasting room. So we had to get even all those laws changed. Again, there was, you know, you couldn't go into a winery. There were bars. You had to have bars on the windows, you know, all sorts of stuff. Then we said, look, this is not, you know, this is not a jail. This is a place of joy and beauty and let people come and just enjoy and sit so we got all those rules changed as well then we got the rules changed to allow a resort on the vineyard so we have today a beautiful boutique hotel it's no longer as boutique we have about 70 rooms today Um, and Mm -hmm. we are the most visited vineyard probably on earth we had 400,000 visitors in the year uh, just before the pandemic 
so it's possibly Sula's tasting room is the place where more people on earth taste their first glass of wine uh, than any other place. So I'm, I'm pretty proud about that. As you should be, because what you are talking about goes far beyond having established and grown a business. You have essentially crafted an industry or actually maybe a few industries uh, when you think about, you know, food, beverage, hospitality and so forth. Now, this show is specifically targeted towards Western audiences. And um, I would love to ask you about agriculture and agricultural entrepreneurship in India. There have been a lot of changes in agriculture, as we know, since the 80s, um, in India, that is. And in recent years, agriculture, agriculturists have come under quite a bit of flack in India. The government wants to make the sector more efficient. Okay. However, there are issues. It gets politicized. I would love to understand your take on this, sort of what you think, where you sit. Well, you know, I mean, I am incredibly progressive. I am not by any means a, a traditionalist. Uh, and what I saw in when I got back to India in the early 90s, still very much the way it was even up till five years ago, which was that it was all about, you know, the green revolution. So basically, you know, harping on stuff that was done in the 60s and 70s and basically talking about wheat, rice, sugar, pulses. That's, you know, that, that's what Indian agriculture was all about. And just absolutely giving short shrift and zero attention to processing. And, you know, what modern agriculture is, is much more, you know, it's about wine, it's about cheese, it's about orange juice, it's about, you know, it's, it's so much other stuff apart from just growing grain. Um, and, you know, India has, has, has not given much attention to that at all. Um, and, you know, mm -hmm. it's been this, this very mollycoddle system where the big farmers are very politically powerful and they get what they want. They get all the, the, the irrigation projects and the, the, the canals passing through their land. And, and, you know, then they get, you know, very remunerative prices for, for growing. You know, they grow, they grow rice in, in North India, in Haryana. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the place to grow rice. And, uh, you know, the, the water table is gone in Punjab and Haryana. It's finished, um, you know, and then it, so it's the government needs to do something. It needs to change things. It needs to bring private buyers into it. And you have all these huge farmers over there and they are very politically powerful and they've gotten all these smaller farmers together to rally. But at the end of the day, I think that this is something that's going to be good for the for some of the, the smaller guys. It's going to go against the bigger guys, but it's so overdue. It's so necessary. I'm all in favor of it. I think the government went about it wrong. There was a way there should mm -hmm. have been a process of consultation and maybe, you right. know, all the things they wanted to do, they, they shouldn't have done. They should have talked about it. Maybe they had a 10 point agenda and maybe they said, OK, let's start with six or seven. They've gone about it wrong. But at the end of the day, the 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 what they're looking to to do i think it makes a lot of sense india needs to change there's so much potential and it's totally being held back by the old systems thank you for that uh perspective i i definitely agree and it's nice to hear that because i think you're right uh, there's a lot of potential there's a lot of change that can happen and the government unfortunately has appeared very authoritarian having not necessarily gone about it the right way. But I'd love to ask you, uh, as we get to a close, what can a 
what can a young entrepreneur learn from you? A young entrepreneur who would like to go into agriculture, either in India or frankly, anywhere. One or two takeaways. Well, I mean, look, I think my story is an entrepreneur's story. I, I, I would say it's more that than necessary, necessarily an agriculture story. Um, you know, I went into a field where nobody was doing anything, came up with a new way of doing it, persuaded the authorities that this was something good, um, fostered an ecosystem. Um, today we have in Nasik 30 wineries. I, we were the first. Um, what an, an entrepreneur's journey, it, you better be passionate about what you want to do and you better be ready from day one for lots of ups and downs. So, you know, that's that's the first thing I'm, I'm, I'm sure, you know, many people have said that. But wow, it's a roller coaster. You need to be strong. I think that's the, the one thing that that entrepreneurs need to be mm-hmm. mentally, uh, mentally very strong, resilient. You know, I always think that I had an advantage that, you know, my parents were from an in an Indian context, fairly well off that even if my project had failed, it's not that I would have been out on the street. And I always yeah. feel that that should be something someone should think of that. Look, I if I try something today, mm-hmm. let's say I, I quit my job as I did. I had, a, I had a great job at Oracle. It was, uh, you know, something that my family was really proud of. I loved what I had achieved up till then. But I just chucked it up. I said, just said, look, one life to live. I want to do something different. And I know that if it doesn't work, I always I can go back to doing a job or, you know, I have, you know, I can if I get I can't stay in my house anymore, I'll go stay at my parents home for a while. Anybody who's in that situation, I feel should give it a shot. What have you got to lose? Right. What have you got to yeah. lose? That's the way that I've always thought about it since day one. Um, I think there's probably too many bankers and lawyers and financial <laughs> advisors and accountants in the world. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm pretty scathing about this. You know, I see the, the world in terms of traders and creators. And, um, and look, I don't take me everything I say totally seriously, but you know, you know, we, we are, we are surrounded by traders and they are very smart people and they can make money with something goes up, something goes down and they'll make money. But it's the creators, it's the ones who actually put in that work to create that value. Those are the ones I really respect. And I think if you've got one life to live, you should try to be that creator rather than being that trader and saying that, hey, oh, I made so much when crypto went from 20,000 to 40,000 and I'm worth X million. And, you know, what have you done? And, you know, what's it what is it done for the for the human race, for the planet, for everything? So I believe very strongly in that. There's one other thing, you know, since you've got me here and the, the, the other thing I believe very strongly in is if yes. your business, if you're not thinking about sustainability and you're not thinking about doing business in an eco-friendly way and from, from day one, then you should not be doing it. I think today, I think we have hardly any time left and each one of us has a responsibility. And that's another pillar of Sula. We are one of the most sustainable winery operations in the world. We do 70% of our power comes from on-site own uh, solar PV. Uh, we do massive rainwater harvesting. We don't waste a single drop of water. All of that stuff is stuff also that I'm very proud about at the same time as having built Sula to what it is today. Beautiful. It's very, very inspirational, Rajiv. And in fact, it ties 
right to the core of this particular series of the True Fiction Project, which is about engendering creativity. I think I might have explained, or maybe, maybe, maybe not quite in detail, the premise of this show, which is really to conduct these interviews with people who have amazing life stories that really create impact. Then what we do is we throw this out to a fiction writer uh, to listen to. And somewhere in this interview sparks some kind of inspiration. So I'd love to close by asking you if you wanted to give a fiction writer a writing prompt based upon your story, what might it be? Wow, that's a real googly. <laughs> a writing prompt. I mean, my story is, its a, I think it's a pretty romantic one, right? I mean, somebody who goes and sees the, the world in the most advanced, the most advanced place in the world, Silicon Valley, arguably, and then goes to, from there to just chucks it up, travels the world, trying to figure out what they want to do and, and lands up in one of the most backward and poverty-stricken parts of the world. And uh, and then just build something beautiful out of that. So I, I, I think that that would be the, the hook. You know, one of the things that I, I, I didn't mention was also that uh, our winery um, is mostly most of our workers come from the villages around the winery. And, you know, they're from, you know, that I mean, really, India has a caste system. One of the things you probably don't know about Sula is that most of our um, employees in Nasik are from the, the lowest caste. Um, and that's something. And so here I am. I'm a, you know, a Brahmin dude. Um, you know, I mean, I've never been one much one for caste. But the whole thing, when you look at the whole, the whole story, it's all very, you could come up with 20 different stories, I'm sure, sure with it. It's amazing. Again, that ties right into one of the previous interviews that we had on the show, which was with the Kabir Cafe, a, a band that has come together with people of different castes, and they sing the couplets of Saint Kabir, who lived in the 14th, 15th century. Yeah, we know them well. They've played, they've played at Sula. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. The one thing I didn't mention, one of the, the big things we did was a music festival, Sula Fest. Tell us about Sula Fest. Yeah, music has always been my first love. You know, from the day that I started playing piano at the age of five until, you know, I went to Stanford and got an education in rock and roll from my dorm mates and music was always been with me since then. Yeah. So I was always throwing big parties and <laughs> entertaining people and bringing people together. And that's always been what's turned me on. You know, wine is, I, I love wine, but I won't say that it, it turns me on in that way that music does. And that's, and then Sula, Sula gave me a reason to throw the biggest party ever. You know, we had 15,000 people at our last uh, Sula Fest, and we, we, we brought in bands from all across the country and across the world, and especially bands like Kabir Cafe. We love their music, a small band doing some really cool stuff. And so uh, Sula has also become a place for uh, a destination for music lovers. So I, I know your, your peeps from Kabir Cafe. Fantastic. Well, we're playing their music right through the season. Rajiv, thank you so much for joining me on the True Fiction Project. I cannot wait to hear the piece of fiction that comes out of this. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And I am looking forward to seeing what comes out of it. My guest today, Rajiv Samanth, who is the CEO and founder of Sula Vineyards in India. 
And I'm Renita Hora, your host for the True Fiction Project. Stay tuned for more. And now to the premise of the True Fiction Project, which of course is to create fiction out of nonfiction. The Grape Farm Spectre. This story was written by Gary Kristoff from Toronto. So, a ghost, you say? I'm not saying it's a ghost, but that's what the villagers believe. It's probably just a jackal or some local kid stealing grapes. Sanith was walking slowly between the rows of grape plants, chatting on the phone with Brian, his friend from work. I told them it's probably nothing, but I already promised to help, so here I am. Sanith looked up. The sun had just sat behind the hills. The moon was still pale and the stars were just starting to show up one by one, shimmering like tiny pieces of glitter in the sky. He had a flashlight with him. However, he didn't need it yet. According to the eyewitnesses, the so-called ghost was not expected to show up until later at night. Sanith was aiming to be there before it shows up to catch it off guard. All right, Brian said. Just be careful. If it's really wildlife or thieves, it would be better if you notified the authorities. Senneth sighed without answering. He already knew that. In fact, it was exactly what he was planning to do. He was really worried at first when his father called him and said there was an emergency back home. He got even more concerned when his father said he cannot talk about the nature of the problem over the phone. At least he was able to confirm that both his parents and their loved ones were okay. And yet, he could feel the urgency of the situation. Without thinking twice, he packed up and flew back to India. He didn't even have time to call his boss and explain the situation, leaving Brian to do it instead. Fortunately, Brian notified him that it went well and the company wished him well and his family well and awaited his return. While on the plane, Sanith imagined all sorts of possible scenarios. What could possibly go wrong? Is the grape field infested with insects or fungi? Are there aggressive competitors? What could possibly prevent his family from explaining the situation over the phone? The answer became clear shortly after we arrived home from the airport. His parents and other family members, as well as, to his surprise, the village elders, were gathered at his family's house. And they told him how the workers at his family's grape fields became frightened when they started seeing a ghost. In the fields after dark, when the first sighting was reported by a worker, no one believed him. They assured him he was drunk or simply fell asleep in the field and had a nightmare. Soon, however, more and more people began reporting the translucent white apparition roaming in the fields. Until one night, Senneth's father himself stayed in the field overnight in order to get to the bottom of the mystery. To his horror, he encountered the vicious spirit face to face. Seneth felt bad for his father. Regardless of what he actually saw in the field, Seneth could tell that the man was profoundly affected by the experience. Several days had passed since his unfortunate encounter, and yet his hands were shaking while he was recounting the story. The reason why Seneth's family were reluctant to talk about the ghost over the phone 
was simply out of concern that he might not believe them or take them seriously. I saw him rise from the ground between the trellises in the old part of the farm, Senna's father recounted. Blood froze in my veins as I stood there. I couldn't move, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing in front of me. It was a spirit in the shape of a hunched old man. He just hovered there at first, inches above the ground. And then he saw me. No, no, he turned and looked directly into my eyes, as though he already knew I was there. He began to glide towards me, slowly at first, moving faster and faster as he came closer. I wanted to shout at him, tell him to get away from my crops, but the words were stuck in my throat. I gathered my courage and stepped towards the phantom. I raised my fist and began to shake it in his direction. But he was unfazed. Even worse, he opened his mouth three times wider than a living being could and rushed towards me. He screamed louder than any wild animal as he reached his bony hands out to grab me. I shielded myself with my arms as I prepared for the clash. However, nothing happened. When I opened my eyes, the spirit was gone, just as suddenly as he appeared. The elders were nodding along, their solemn gazes fixated on Sinith's father as he was telling the story. Sinith even suspected it was all an elaborate prank at first. However, everyone in the room was dead serious. In fact, they looked desperate. They called Sinith to see if he could help them with the ghost problem, using the knowledge he acquired at Stanford. Of course, nothing in his engineering curriculum had prepared him for dealing with the paranormal, but he promised to do his best to solve the mystery. Sinith, uh, hey, Sinith, are you still there? Brian was still on the phone. Sorry, I just spaced out, Sinith explained. He walked into the field, confident that he was going to find a natural explanation for the strange phenomenon. But as the sky got darker and a chill wind descended from the hills, he felt increasingly less confident. What, what were you saying? He asked Brian as casually as possible. You just... Okay. Sinith could only hear fragments of what Brian was saying. Brian? Hello? Sinith looked at his phone. No bars. It's no wonder, out here in the countryside, he was surprised to have any mobile reception at all. He sighed again and placed the phone in his pocket. He continued to walk, consumed by thoughts. As the shadows on the ground got longer, the vines on the trellises began to look like bony hands, reaching for Seneth's collar, trying to grab his neck. He shook his head to ward off the disturbing image. What could it be? Seneth recalled stories he heard about hikers who would get lost in California's vast national parks. Sometimes they would see a swamp gas burning in the night, 
and take them for ghosts or UFOs. In other instances, people would find themselves hallucinating in poppy fields and seeing all sorts of bizarre images. Yet there were no swamps nearby, and the only thing growing in his father's fields were grapes. So, what could be causing the strange visions? He turned a corner and continued to walk. He was now entering the older part of the field where the vegetation was thicker. His heart began to pump faster. This was the part of the field where the mysterious encounters were recurring. He stopped as a gust of wind blew through the vines around him. He realized as he stood there that it was unnaturally quiet. The chirping of the insects had suddenly stopped. Don't be ridiculous now, he told himself. It's just wind. He continued walking towards the center of the old field. The confidence he managed to muster was gone in an instant as he saw a glowing mist rising from the ground. Seneth stopped again. He felt a chill running up his spine as the hairs on the back of his head stood up. It, it can't be. A humanoid shape rose menacingly from beneath the wet soil. Gradually, it took the shape of an old man. Before he could think about his next move, Saneth found himself running. His heart blood-chilling howls closer and closer behind him. His world was turning upside down. Uh, there's no way. Uh, ghosts aren't real. Uh, ghosts aren't real. He gasped as he stumbled over a root and fell face first into the moist dirt. He quickly turned over. The ghostly figure was standing directly above him. His translucent robes were moving in the wind, even though the grape leaves and vines around him were still. Zenith quickly got up. The ghost, in turn, opened his mouth and lifted his arms towards Zenith. Zenith's first impulse was to scream and keep running or defend himself. However, he decided to stand his ground. Who are you? What, what do you want? He shouted in an embarrassingly high-pitched voice. Leave me alone! He screamed, closing his eyes. When nothing happened after a few seconds, Seneth slowly opened one eye, then another. The white glowing specter was gone. In his place was standing a frail old man. He looked just as human as Sinath himself, studying him with his tired, sunken eyes. Don't be afraid, young man. The ghost spoke. He had the voice of an ordinary old man, no more ghostly howling. Sinath stood there with his mouth open. The ghostly man could see his shock. He smirked and introduced himself. My name is Ahan. And I used to own these fields. The Han made a broad gesture with his thin, scrawny arm. I am Sanath, the young man replied. Have we, um, disturbed you with our presence? Not at all, the Han said. On the contrary, you are here to help me. 
He turned around and gestured to Sanath to follow him deeper into the field, back towards the spot where Ahant first emerged from the ground. Back then, when I was still alive, I used to be a wealthy farmer, Ahant began to tell his story. But there were others wealthier than me, and greedier. I had the unfortunate idea that brought me to my demise. I realized that everyone in the area was growing table grapes. So I thought to myself, why not grow wine grapes and open a winery? The climate is perfect here. I was guaranteed to have the best wine in India. However, when the owner of a neighboring field heard about my plan, he got anxious and jealous. He couldn't let me have my way. So, one night, he asked me to meet him in the field. <laughs> he, he was very friendly and said he had a business proposal for me. <laughs> Gullible as I was, I believed him and came. Seneth was walking along a han, listening attentively. The old man was not at all intimidating, just sad and frail. Sanath even had an impulse to hold him by the elbow to help him walk. But Ahan stopped him with a gaze and smirked. <laughs> Don't mind me, young man. I am already dead. <laughs> Better keep listening. So, what happened next? Sanath asked. He snuck up on me and stabbed me in the back, Ahan said matter-of-factly. There was no pain in his voice. And buried me. He stopped and pointed at the ground. Right on this spot. And since then, I was cursed to rise from my grave and roam the fields every night until a kind soul would encounter me and offer help. Seneth stopped walking as he was struck by a realization. Who are you? What do you want? These were the words he said to the ghost. He offered to hear him out. His words prompted Ahan to turn from a vicious phantom into the mild old man that he truly was. Ahan didn't speak. He only smiled kindly and dissipated into the night's misty air. Wow, what a story, my friend. I have to say, so there was no ghost, but they found a body? Indeed, Seneth confirmed. He was talking to Brian while boarding the plane en route back to the States. They even made an arrest. The poor guy was murdered by a competitor. You don't say, Brian replied. And what about your folks? How are they doing? They're doing great now, Seneth replied happily. In fact, they decided to scale up their business. Really? Do tell. Seneth buckled up, preparing for takeoff. They decided to change things up a bit and open a winery. Thank you for listening to The True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. 
For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.